Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode 233 of the Attention to Growth Podcast. Today on the show, we have a gentleman named Kevin McArdle, who is the co-founder and CEO of SureSwift Capital. SureSwift Capital acquires SaaS businesses from independent founders and takes them to the next stage growth. They have currently acquired 38 businesses within five years and just completed the raise of their first private equity fund. Kevin's passion for personal relationships and driving business results are at the heart of SureSwift's impressive growth to date. Prior to founding Sure Swift. Kevin was a vice president at Cerner Corporation, which is a leading global healthcare IT firm. In his 15-year tenure at Cerner, Kevin held positions in sales, sales leadership, operations, general management, client management, eventually becoming one of the youngest vice presidents in the company's 35-year history. Kevin and Sure Swift's story is a prime example on how focusing on the right metrics, cash flow and enterprise value, and combining it with the right strategies and use of capital can help you accomplish even your loftiest goals. Whatever it is that you're solving for, a more valuable business is gonna be the means and the vehicle that are gonna allow you to accomplish your ultimate goals. Kevin's gonna share with us how he was able to quit corporate America, why he decided to start buying companies instead of starting one, how they went from buying small $50,000 websites to multi-million dollar businesses that require lots of capital down and a big investment from the partners at SureSwift, and what they did to snowball those companies into a portfolio of 38 highly profitable SaaS businesses doing eight figures in revenue. One of the things that I want you to take away from this is that if you're focused on the right metrics, like growing the enterprise value of your business and de-risking your cash flow, you can accelerate your path towards your goals. The fact that Kevin was able to quit corporate America five years ago and scale up 38 businesses into a portfolio of companies shows that if you're being intentional and focused on the right things, you have a high probability of accomplishing the things that you set out to accomplish. If you want help clarifying your path to a more valuable business so that way you can make your vision a reality, don't forget to check out the Intentional Growth Digital Course at arcona.io. You can dive into the course by yourself with all 38 videos in five and a half hours for a thousand bucks, or you can hire me for four coaching calls over four weeks, and that's 2,000 bucks. And again, that's at arcona.io. So without further ado, here's my interview with Kevin McArdle and SureSwift Capital. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Kevin, how you doing, man? Very good, Ryan. Happy to be here with you. So we're wrapping up uh, 2020. By the time this goes out, uh, we'll be off into 2021, hopefully <laughs> coming up with some sort of those projections that we all send out of the companies that we work with. Uh, let's see if yeah. we can actually hit it on the mark. This It will be good to have 2020 in the rear view mirror. It was a mess <laughs> for a whole lot of reasons. 
So um, for the listeners, I'm going to connect a couple of dots. Um, you and I, I'm trying to th- even think who introduced us. It, I've just crazy small world, man. Like with yeah. you and I, we got, we know a lot of the same online entrepreneurs and then Arvid, who literally was just on the show. He was, he finally got to the end. I didn't even know it till the end. And he was like, yeah, I sold the sure swift. And I'm like, shut yeah. up. <laughs> I was like, Kevin, no shit. I just yeah. had lunch with him. So I'm just pumped because you've got a super interesting background. And uh, for the listeners, you know, I've talked about like the, in our five principles, principle three is about exit options and it's Mm -hmm. just about understanding them. And one of them is an acquisition entrepreneur. One of them is a strategic uh, acquirer. And then one of them is a private equity. And you are a business buyer and you came at it from kind of a couple of those different angles and I'd love to hear, have the listeners hear your background of how you guys started the business, what your approach is with the first phase. And then you and I were just talking before we hit record, how you're actually getting to professional investment and raising a fund. And so mm-hmm. let's just, you know, who are you and how the heck did you get to where you are today? And then we can unpack it. Yeah, well, let me start by saying of those exit options, I, I guess we would technically qualify as private equity. But a friend of mine uh, said, and I like to just steal it, he has a similar business in the offline space. His name's Brent Bishore. He Brent's been on the calling, show. Oh, he has. Okay. So I figured you knew Brent. He said uh, at one point, calling us private equity is like calling an ostrich a bird. While <laughs> technically correct, it doesn't really fit the spirit of the word. So there's a lot of things about SureSwift that are very different than private equity. You know, we have a you know more of a permanent capital structure. You know, we we don't buy with an intent to flip and sell businesses. We don't have a hold period for our fund. You know, so we can get into some of those details. But I like to think of us more as a holding company. So maybe you could add that as a fourth option to your ex- exit options. But that's that's what I want your listeners to think of when they when they're uh, envisioning SureSwift. So getting into it, yeah, I, I don't know that my background is all that interesting. I spent 15 years in corporate America working for a very large software company and did a little bit of everything at that company from sales to sales leadership to operations, you know, managed development teams, managed big client relationships. Um, company was Cerner and it was a really fast, it still, well, I don't know what their growth is over the last six years, but I was there from 2000, 2015 and it was growing Screaming really, growth. really fast, which just created opportunity. Like if you performed, you got given the next job and the next job and the next job. And so you screwed up. And fortunately, I, I uh, performed more often than I screwed up. So, <laughs> And after 15 years, uh, along the way, I got a, a MBA nights and weekends just because to, to beef up my business knowledge, because I in in college, I, I wanted to be a high school math teacher. So I got a- Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I got a math and secondary ed double major and actually was a high school math teacher for one year before joining Cerner. And I just realized I didn't love it enough to, you know, sign up for a teacher's salary for the rest of my life. So I wanted to try something different. Anyway, I got into corporate, the corporate world and realized there's a lot of stuff that I don't know about business. So went and did the MBA and I thought that would, you know, make me more valuable. Um, but uh, the, the two things about the MBA are one... I actually learned more just from working at Cerner about business than being in a classroom. But the more important thing, I, I read all these case studies of entrepreneurs who built just giant, amazing businesses. And I was sort of scratched below the surface and realized like these aren't comic book superheroes. They're just 
normal men and women who maybe had a good idea or maybe worked a little bit harder than average or, you know, were maybe a little bit, you know, smarter than average. Uh, and I'm like, well, why can't I do that? So I'd always had this dream or desire to own my own business and I just never had the right idea. And so, you know, fast forward to sort of the end of that part of the story, I've been at Cerner for 15 years. I knew the, the next 10 year career trajectory and I was becoming less and less interested in it. Not because I didn't love the company. It just was kind of like started to get boring and I didn't yeah. want to do that for the rest of my life. Um, and then, uh, you know, a, a friend who ended up being my co-founder approached me with the idea of, hey, why don't we just buy other people's businesses that are profitable and, you know, we'll run like just that simple. Like that's what private equity is. If you boil it down to two sentences and, you know, after a lot of thinking and talking and, you know, analyzing what that might look like, I was like, yeah, this fits, this fits, you know, I, I get to run it, but it, because we're only buying profitable businesses, it's way lower risk than a lot of startups. So, you know, there's a million details in, in the middle of that, but that's kind of what was the genesis of ShareSwift. So, and, and what I think is super interesting as far as it like relates to buyers and sellers of companies, one is that like, you know, I'm curious in like how you guys landed on kind of your holding company structure, because like when I look at like the five categories of exit options that we have, they're kind of like categories of like dogs, cats, like there's a bunch, right? So like a family office could invest in a private equity firm or they could go buy the company themselves, right? So like, mm-hmm. You know, as an acquisition entrepreneur, yeah, you know, Walker Dibel's terminology in his world, it's like, okay, someone in like your situation, like, you know, Minnesota here, we got 3M, we got all these public companies. So someone could save up, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, go get an SBA loan and go buy a company. So you Mm -hmm. decided not to do that. That would be kind of the acquisition entrepreneur. And then the private equity is you raise a fund from investors to go deploy the money. You're kind of like in between there. And so- how did you decide to do what you did instead of um, like just raise, you know, or take a little bit of your own money and buy a company with an SBA loan? Or like, what was the, the thought process behind the holding company? So going back in time, the, the thought process was, uh, it was, you know, me and that original co-founder, let's just pool our own capital and, and test the idea. You know, there wasn't really anything to, you know, I, I wasn't going to take out a loan to go do it because we didn't need to. And I would rather... You know, test the idea with my own money than put, um, you know, risk, you know, losing a house because something went sideways. Uh, and so we just started small. Um, and in terms of like the long hold period, it was really about the market that we're in. So we haven't really touched on this, but we, you know, I said we were going to buy online profitable businesses. I don't know if I mentioned the online part earlier. In that space where we started, which was, you know, candidly, relatively tiny checks. Like the first business we bought, I think was for 50 grand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the range has gone way up since. <laughs> a couple so more zeros buying, these days, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. We're, we're buying businesses that are, you know, inherently more risky than a brick and mortar business. Like there are no assets to be auctioned off if it, you know, you wanted to break it up for parts, there's no real estate. And so because they are inherently more risky, they trade at sometimes multiples as low as two times trailing to wealth profits. So I looked at that and I'm like, okay, well, I'd love to be a buyer in that space because all I have to do is not screw it up. And in two years, I've got my money back. Mm -hmm. Sweet. And I still own a profitable asset. I don't like being a seller in that space because why would I sell an asset when I could just hold it for two more years and still have all that money? 
Now, as as our check size has gone up, so has the the multiples. But you know, they kind of the concepts out at, at you know between the three to five x trailing twelve profit range, right? So, and EBITDA for your listeners. So, um, love being a buyer in that space. Not crazy about being a seller in that space. So that is why we sort of naturally adopted this buy and hold strategy. And I do want to emphasize, like buy and hold is a strategy for us. It's not a religion. We have divested in some businesses, um, including that first one that we bought for 50 grand, because it just like, they don't fit what we're doing anymore. You know, over the uh, period of five and a half years, we've evolved to being squarely focused on software as a service businesses. And we had some businesses early on that were content or membership based. And so that's kind of what has driven the strategy. Now, along the way, we did take on some debt just to extend our runway and juice the returns. So I'm not anti-debt, especially in today's, you know, markets. <laughs> but yeah, the whole uh, SBA loan, you know, nothing against people who do that. I just worry that a lot of businesses are going to go under because they're going to be overweighted with debt. And if it you know it takes a downturn, you can't service the loan. And you know, I'm not crazy about... Um, a lot and, and a lot of like brokers in this space and the ecosystem is just promoting that. And I, I love that as a means to entrepreneurship. And I worry that somebody, especially somebody who's never been an operator before, decides they want to be an entrepreneur and they buy somebody else's business with other people's money. And just things can go wrong really easily in that scenario. Well, and I think it's super interesting, Kevin, because like, you know, the point of the third principle being exit options just to understand how you could eventually transition or liquidate mm-hmm. some of your ownership. And like, you know, I've always said like, you know, you got a lot of these search funds out there, like, and people don't know that are, you know, sellers, they don't know the difference between you guys and some individual Sally or Joe that's willing to take out an SBM. Like it's so therefore what they're willing to accept for price and terms with what the person's capabilities of running that business after close is so huge of a spectrum that they have to yeah. do almost just as much due diligence on the buyers <laughs> than they yeah. do. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I love your podcast is that it, you know, you're educating people on all of these things. And, and I think, you know, a good business owner should be thinking exit options way, way, way before they, or even if they never intend to sell, you just need to understand the ecosystem and, understand what that looks like so that when you are ready to sell and sometimes our timing doesn't end up being the timing that we think Mm -hmm. it's going to be right um so you need to be prepared for you know and anything that could come your way in business and an exit is one of those things you need to prepare for and yeah i I totally agree like you know the last price is one of a hundred things you need to worry about when approaching an exit um and the other 99 are just as important as price so um, I'm curious, and I think the listeners are should be curious too. If you went from being a software sales rep at a very large software conglomerate to buying companies, yeah. <laughs> so like, where in the hell did you learn valuations? You said TTM trailing 12 months, deal mm-hmm. structure. Like, so the education that the listeners are tuning in for that own a company are also like, how did you get that knowledge? And then how did you like start to apply that? And then how did like this is, this is all tied into one question of like this lack of valuation and deal structure and uh, like understanding it from the seller and owner's perspective, how did you get it? And then how does that translate? And what's your observations as far as the market's understanding a level of education? 
a lot of questions there. Let me try to take them one at a time. So um, <laughs> sorry about that. During, no, during my corporate experience, I was fortunate enough to um, lead one acquisition that was successful. So I saw kind of the, the, the big picture and learned some of the things of like what to think about and how valuations are created at that level, which is mm-hmm. astronomically different than what I'm doing. Like there were so many, you know, bankers and lawyers involved, you know, it was silly but at least was a, a swing at the back, right? Mm-hmm. And then before I like commit, before I quit my job and committed to do this, I did a ton of research. Um, and, you know, it's easy to say, well, let's go, let's go find online businesses and buy them. But like, <laughs> okay, well, what is that? And, that and through that research, I found um, there are brokers that deal exclusively in this space. And that may have been who I think maybe you had Mark Doust on your podcast. Yeah. Your years and years ago. Mark, yeah. And then uh, even the uh, FE international Thomas Smale was on here for, yeah. So yeah. I know, I know both of those guys very well. I, I bought businesses from both of them. Um, and it was, it, that was the light bulb moment for me because I'm like, okay, we, you know, we can buy online businesses. What do they look like? What is the profitability of some of these things? What types of businesses are, because I, I was in software. But it's almost like a different industry, like a big, you know, for some context, when I left Cerner, it was doing five billion a year in revenue and had 20,000 people around the world working there. Right. So now I'm trying to study online businesses that, you know, could have a, it could be a company of one and it might be passive income for that one person. Right. So, it, you know, it's very different. But as I studied it, I uncovered Quiet Light and FE International. And group called Digital Exits. And there was like 30 different brokers. And the more I looked, the more I found. And I'm like, okay, there is a robust secondary market for these businesses. And I don't have to just like open a phone book and hope to find somebody that has an online business and hope that they're ready to sell. And it was those brokers early on just getting a whole bunch of reps. You know, I got on their email list and you get a new prospectus you know, often multiple times a day and just reading and studying and realizing there is a kind of a range in there of like, this is what a reasonable, uh, you know, asking price would be. And these types of businesses have this different nuance. And these are the things that, you know, so I learned from those sort of experts in the field because all they do is turn out businesses. Um, not all they do that undersells the, the difficulty of being a broker, but, um, that was that was where I did a whole lot of learning really yep. early, and then um, the, the the biggest learnings happen when you actually start you know taking punches, and you know doing these acquisitions and figuring out all the the legal stuff and you know, escrow and how to transition a business and being burned once or twice is are always good lessons. Um, making mistakes are always good lessons, and and that's. That's really, you know, just like working at Cerner taught me more about business than sitting in a classroom and learning about business. You know, I did, learned a lot just from reading these prospectuses from brokers, but I learned a whole lot more from, as of recording, we've acquired 38 businesses in five years. So, you know, a lot of those went well, some of those did not, and um, actually learned as much from the failures as I did from the successes. So 38 businesses in five years. There's obviously a lot of lessons that you've learned. You could probably go teach the MBAs at this point, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, when you maybe like there's a couple questions that I have is like 
you know, now that you're at, before we get into what you guys are doing now and how you've mm-hmm. upped your game as far as raising a fund, you know, okay. this pool of capital, I'm curious on like, how, how did you fund these? And I'm trying to think of what's, what's, what's the best sequence here is like, first, yeah. How did you fund them? And how did, like, so did you, did you fund them with, as you continue to acquire them, you use the cash flow to buy the next one or like, what was the process? And then is it just you and your other co-founder? Like what's the ownership? Yeah, that's setup? part of the story. Yeah. So it's is me and the co-founder, our own capital. I think we did five or six deals that were in the low six figure range. And just to learn, you know, can, can Kevin find good deals? Yes. Okay. Check. Can we close those? And can we, can Kevin operate them? Yes. Check. And can I build a small team to manage these things so I can continue working on acquisitions and not get bogged down in the day-to-day operations of the business? Yes. Check. And as I get more, um, you know, I'm seeing more deals. I'm building good relationships with these brokers, not just on their email list. And we're starting to see more deals that are bigger that we didn't have the capital to go execute on. And so we brought in three other partners and sort of recapitalized the business with more money, but just from, you know, it's still five humans putting in personal money to go fund this thing. And so we start doing more and bigger deals and clarification after, on that, on that part. So yeah. recapitalize the business for the listeners that may or may not understand like how that would work. So I'm assuming you, did you guys put a value on the whole portfolio of companies and then ask for equity from the other partners or like, what was the way of like understanding equity and how do you divvy that up? Because the early portfolio wasn't all that big. We, we went from, instead of I own 50% of the business I own 20% because there's four other people, but I didn't put in any more money. They all put in large sums of money. I just committed to them. This is all I'm going to do for the foreseeable future. And yep. I'm going to run it. Okay. So, um, and then along the way, so this is, that was uh, Black Friday of 2015. So big milestones tied to holidays. I actually quit my job on July 4th, 2015, which I <laughs> call it my Independence Day from corporate America. And then that Black Friday, we signed the new shareholder agreement and had new capital, which was immediately deployed on some of it was immediately deployed on a couple of deals later that year. And then about midway through 2016, we had now a robust portfolio with a meaningful P&L, meaningful balance sheet. And I went and secured some senior debt and some mezzanine debt just to sort of extend that runway, which got us through you know, let's say, oh, got us to just about Christmas of 2017. And then we continue to see more deals. Everybody's super excited. And so my partners and I said, all right, well, let's put more money of our own back into the business so we can just keep keep funding. Um, And then fast forward to today, as of recording, we are about to close our first fund from outside investors. So, you know, the, the great thing about our business is that it can scale almost infinitely. Like once you start digging in, and it's, it's probably strange for your listeners to hear this, if you're not in this space, like, you know, I know you understand it and you interviewed Arvid and, and he's, he's like a prototypical bootstrap Definitely. software entrepreneur, but it's, it's this kind of odd segment of the worldwide economy that is massive and yet most people don't even know that it exists. It's so true, man. It's right? so true. And so the reason I bring that up is like, you know, we could, if we had enough money and the operational capabilities, we could go acquire 
200 businesses in a year. Like, I don't think that'd be a good idea, but we could do it. And so, you know, if our business just requires like ongoing addition of capital, if we want to continue to scale and grow, which we do. So, okay. And in, in, I want to kind of like cover some of the stuff in the current holdings uh, yeah. company structure, and then we can talk about raising money and how that's different and how, because again, I think it's important for everybody to understand that just the difference of these structures, but going back to like, when you said, you know, you went out and you found some, uh, some senior debt, some mezzanine debt to extend your run- runway. You know, I, what I, one of the things that I've realized is kind of one of my missions, Kevin, is like this ability for, you know, people out like your and I's discussion to have had these conversations around capital and what that mm-hmm. means. Cause you know, business owners, they end up hitting these thresholds and a lot of it has to do with capital and then strategy realistically. Mm-hmm. And so they hit their own ceiling from capital and strategy. And then they end up either continuing to maintain that flat line or selling it. And so when you talk about like, so you got U5 and you're, you've got this pool of companies, revenue, you got cash flow. Did you then go, when you, t- when you t- say you put some, did you put some debt on the overall structure? So that way you were able to, then it's almost like refinancing, right? For the people that aren't really cash out refinancing. So you can then take that money and then go buy more companies, right? That's a very, that's a very good analogy. Um, and when we, when we did it, it was pretty, you know, I, I'm a big spreadsheet guy. So I built up a spreadsheet and said, okay, if we finish deploying the capital that we've already put in as a partnership group and things continue to go well, what does that ongoing cash flow look like? And we would be able to continue to fund acquisitions through cash from operations. It just would have been way less interesting. It would have been a very <laughs> slow and steady pace that frankly would not have you know, given me the the income and lifestyle that I wanted. I'm just not that patient. Yep. Um, so yeah, the, that's exactly right. We secured the debt against the existing portfolio and convinced the banks. And it did require some convincing because um, just like most of the world doesn't know that this segment of the economy existed, our bankers had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> like I had to define SaaS for them. And, they're, and, they're, they're going, and they're, I'm sure the bankers are going, all right, Kevin, so where's your stuff that we can take back yeah. if you fail? What <laughs> <laughs> about the assets? Of these <laughs> it's called a domain. <laughs> <laughs> An email list has some value. Let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah, no, it, it was a joke, but it, it was a legitimately, like I had to educate these people on like what it looks like. And and I'm the guy who just learned that this this like thing even existed a year and a half ago. So yeah, I feel like I should say also like one of your questions, like how did you decide on this strategy or that thing? Or the, to be honest, Ryan, like every month I feel like I'm learning the next thing to get me through the next six months. Like we're making it up as we go along. And I, I like saying that out loud because I feel like everybody feels that, but people are hesitant to just say that out loud. We're all just like dumb cave people wandering around in the wilderness trying to figure shit out. And I'm one of those people. So yeah, how to approach Dude, it is, like, it, Well, and it's so interesting, just on a little, a little commentary uh, on that anecdote on that is, you know, the private equity world, I mean, because they're not public, they, they naturally do not have the worldwide human race constantly analyzing their numbers. Yeah, and so like, like, I mean, I have, I know multi-billion dollar funds where they're like, when they're reporting to their investors, they're just like, well, we think it's worth this. Yeah, <laughs> It's like, oh man, they don't have yeah. analysts that are like, you know, second guessing their, their numbers. Yeah. I'm in the middle of reading 
The King of Capital. It's about it's the best book ever, dude. Steve Schwartzman from, um, from Blackstone. And it is mind-blowing the amount oh, of money that they just like burned on bad deals. And like, I feel bad because I at one point paid 250K for a business that didn't go quite as planned, but it's still profitable. And Schwartzman is like throwing $2 billion into oh, a <laughs> Yeah. And, and luckily they had other deals that, you know, had a 20 X return. So like the good outweighs the bad. I'm like, dang, that's me just on a tiny scale. But like <laughs> this guy is, has one of the, the, the arguably one of the biggest and best private equity firms ever. And they made so many giant, big, bad mistakes. And in hindsight, it was like, man, I feel like you should have seen that coming, you know? So like, <laughs> I, I, that's one of the reasons why I love that book because it makes me feel so much better about the tiny mistakes <laughs> yeah, that I'm exactly. making on a relative basis. Well, I think it's important. It's an important part of the story because how transparent you are with that goes back to, I mean, like even like this going back to the concept of recapitalizing SureSwift and making sure that you can use that better. It's all about this capital deployment and allocation. So like, when you think about your strategy, I mean, any business owner could literally do what you just did, right? Like you could go out mm -hmm. and take a loan out in your own company and use that cash to continue to reinvest it. Most people don't understand what we're talking about, so they don't do it. Mm -hmm. So, I'm, you know, when you go back to your part of the story, so you, you now have more capital because you took on some debt, you got your yeah. partners. How did you use that as far as what was your like, what's your what are the different types of deal structures that you see? And like, so I just did this interview and some of the context behind the question is there's the, the deal price. So like there's the price of the deal, the enterprise value that you're willing to pay. And then there's the deal structure, right? Mm -hmm. So like, how are you going about to make sure that you're using your capital correctly so that way you, you have the ability to reinvest in the things that you need to, to grow the value? Like what was your overall strategy for looking and assessing deals and then Pulling the trigger. So, so as far as uh, growing the portfolio after we've acquired is like rule number one, it's the business has to be profitable. And, and then we sort of build based on the profits of each portfolio company. Not that we can't share resources and funnel people or money to other spots, but you know, we we don't want to take a loan to grow a business. Like the profits of that business should grow that business. So like set that aside. Okay. And then deal structure, um, partly because this is the way the market works in our space, and partly because I like to keep things simple, both for me and sellers, we try to keep deal structure fairly simple. There is the sale price, and usually there is a you know majority of that cash is just handed over at closing once we do the transition. And then usually there's something of a holdback or an earn out over a you know, we kind of settle on a six month period where mm -hmm. that's enough time for us to get our arms around the business, get enough help from the, the seller to where we're capable of running it longer than six months. It's like shame on us if we can't get our act together and replace that founder in six months. Mm -hmm. But um, shorter than that, like we've done deals where it's just a three month transition period because the founder had like a, a full time job and other commitments and they just didn't have the time. And that's really pretty quick to to go through the, just the mechanics of transition and get settled and be able to like take care of customers and take care of marketing of the business. So that's kind of, that's kind of what we do. And that's fairly typical in this space. We also, I'm sure I'm thinking before I say it aloud to make sure I don't misstate it. And I think it's true. It's always been hundred percent buyout. Um, so there's other, you know, you could do yeah. a majority buyout minority. That's just not our style. Like yeah. we love, finding people where they find us when they're, and, you know, I mentioned all the brokers that we dealt with in the beginning. Most common now is that 
we reach out to a founder and say, Hey, I dig your business. When you're ready to sell, you call me. Mm-hmm. And they do. Like that's how we found Arvid and his, his uh, wife, Danielle, wife and co-founder. Um, yep. She's the CEO and he was the technical guy. I just emailed Danielle and I was like, your business looks really awesome. By the way, I'm Kevin. I buy businesses like yours if you're ever interested in selling. And like, I think it was three months later, we owned it. And I, I don't know if that jives with what he, what he Oh yeah, and he even said that like he circumvented the brokers and his one deal was all cash. And I don't know yeah. exactly what the structure was, but I mean, it, whether it was all or mainly cash, I mean, it was- Yeah, like individual deals, it's confidential. So we don't disclose specifics, but yeah, it was it was cash with a bit of a holdback to make sure we had the, the business- you know, arms around a hundred earn out and you're like trailing them yeah. along or anything like that. And yeah, we're interesting, great. it's interesting too, because I, I interviewed a family office and we were talking about like a lot of family offices that do direct investments or purchases like that. They don't mm-hmm. do any minority. Um, like they don't allow people to roll back in. Cause they're like, if we have an indefinite hold period, all of a sudden it's against our interest because we're growing value and we're going to have to pay more for that percentage at some point versus yeah. a PE firm where they'll, t- they'll typically have a date that they have to liquidate. So everybody's mo- uh, moving towards a liquidation event. So it's right. And that's what like that. I, yeah, I love the buy and hold strategy for a lot of those reasons, but it, that and like the lot, it doesn't make sense for a seller to, to roll. And, you know, we, you don't have to make decisions. Another mind blowing thing about King of Capital, like they, they own some companies for less than a year. And you know, just financial engineering, strip expenses, and which I you know, I know that's the flavor, but I didn't think you could do it in a year. Um, oh, crazy, isn't it, man? So and it's just it just um, that's fine. You're making a bunch of people a lot of money, but um, I'm more interested in like long term. This is my last job. You know, yep. I'm about to turn 44. I'm done. I'm, I'm doing this until I don't want to work anymore. And so I'm more interested in you know the, the whole notion of playing long games with long term thinking people. And the businesses that I own, I want to make sure they have long-term sustainability, just healthy growth. It could be fast growth, but I want it to be healthy and sustainable. So you just said a couple of words that I love using, sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow. (laughs) Yeah. So when you think about like these companies, the 38 companies that you've owned, like give us a a peer into your mindset of once you like when you're vetting out a deal and then once you acquire it, like what's the strategy? Cause you've got a long period, right? So it's not the short-term financial engineering, but like what, what thought process or mindset do you and your partners have Kevin that are like how to grow more value? Cause that's like, that's the premise of this podcast of owners of any kind of company you can do this or even people like yourself, like what are you doing that's working to make sure that like when you do, when you purchase that company, you've got the ability to, to actually grow it the right way. Yeah, well, one of the things that has worked is acquisitions are very much a team sport. So it's me and my whole leadership team that assess a business. Uh, we've got a dedicated growth team that all they think about is growing the portfolio. Um, you know, they weigh in on acquisitions. We've got technical experts either based on the you know the tech stack that a business sits on or the platform it's on that you know we, that which avoids mistakes, but it also uncovers growth opportunities and. A simple way to think of it, Ryan, is all of our, all of the businesses we acquire is our small teams. You know, often it's a technical founder, somebody who wrote all the code, him or herself. They hire a few people to help once the business gets big enough to support it. And the smartest ones know to start replacing themselves. So, like the less they do on the day to day, that's that transferable cash flow yep. that you're talking about. 
where if I'm working full time on the business, then the, the you know the seller has to or the, the buyer has to replace a full time person with a pretty unique skill set, and that's expensive. Yep. So those are some of the when it and, and when it works well. How do I how do I say this in a um, simple way? I've got immense respect for people like Arvid, and there's dozens of others that we bought businesses from that have built something out of nothing. Immense respect, and at the same time, shame on us if with 80 people around the world with all this technical expertise and all of these experiences under our belt of acquiring and operating 38 companies. If we can't take a business that's got a solo founder trying to figure it all out him or herself, and if we can't do at least as well as they're doing, and hopefully a little bit better, then we're doing something wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so that's like the basic premise of growth. And, and then looking backward, you know, it's easier to grow a company after you buy it, if it's growing before you buy it, you know, like <laughs> we, we've tried, the, you know, there's a little pearl of wisdom for your, for your, uh, for your listeners. And I, you know, trademark that for Kevin McCarroll, but um, <laughs> we've tried the turnaround and there's a lot of people raising funds out there to buy failed VC companies and, you know, strip away all the expenses and we're going to turn around and make it profitable. And good luck to those folks. Cause that sounds really hard. I've kind of tried that before. It's really hard. You can get, you know, get it really cheap, but um, it's hard to do. And we bought businesses that were flat because, you know, we knew and the sellers told us, you know, we've kind of been ignoring this business because we're working on this other business that's growing perfectly reasonable. And we're like, well, that's flat, but it's, we can make it grow. And it's, Turns out that's hard. It might be flat for a reason. And, and then we bought businesses that are, you know, growing 50 to 100% year over year. And turns out those are pretty easy to continue growing 50 to 100% year over year. And you can even bend the, the, the curve upward a little bit. Um, but, you know, it just comes back down to like, we have scale, we've got expertise, we've got expertise like talent in the room. And we also have the experience of doing this a whole bunch of times and learning what works and what doesn't work. And we're just very much systems and process oriented so that, you know, we, another person that you know, and that your listeners will know is uh, Robert Smith from Vista Equity. Like they always talk about their 110 standard operating procedures. And I just tried to long ago, tried to steal that idea and say, okay, figure out what works, write it down and do it across the whole portfolio and learn something new. And then that, write that one down and just keep leveling up our, our expertise. Got it. So then there's like when you buy the business and then you say, okay, what are we going to do now? How do you leverage that team? How do you leverage that experience? Um, there is a concept I introduced into our, my partner and I's uh, podcast called annual income versus long-term value creation. This is kind of a theory that like we've kind of identified of like most owners are solving for annual income, sucking the distributions out, sucking, you know, the pay from their, mm -hmm. their salary and they're not reinvesting. So there's this thing called burning the J or the J curve, burning EBITDA. Right. So like, but the goal is it's just reinvesting back, reinvesting those cat, the cash flow back into the business. How are you identifying where to put that money back in? Like what strategies that grow value, not just, you know, vanity metrics of revenue or email subscribers or whatever the hell it might be. I mean, is there mm -hmm. like some way that you're using that, using a lens to figure out how to deploy that money? Yeah. My vanity metric is cash flow. Um, and that's not, is that a vanity metric? If it's the only <laughs> thing that matter, it matters. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we don't talk about it publicly, so it's just vanity me looking in the mirror, but um, the, 
I, I, the simple way to answer your question, Ryan, is that the, the largest expense for any of these businesses is people. Uh, and so, you know, if we take a business that's doing 30K a month in revenue and it grows to be 60K a month in revenue, that's because we've either, you know, doubled the customer base or, or raised prices or some combination of the two. And so we're probably going to need to add team to support that 2x customer base. We're going to have to add some technical infrastructure and scale up the tech to support a doubling of the customer base. But you don't have to double the expenses to support that. Mm -hmm. So margins expand. Another thing that we do um, is paid advertising. So Google ads or AdWords, you know, some of your listeners will be familiar with. We test that. And if it works, like if we can put a dollar into that machine and get $2 back, we'll do that all day. But there is a point of like diminishing returns where like mm -hmm. you just spending more money doesn't, you know, and end up you put a dollar in the machine and a dollar comes back. Well, okay, let's let's halt there. Yep. So we're very conscious business by business to making sure we have the right team on the ground to support the 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 business as it is. We know in many cases if we add team members, that it increases growth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that you know these. You know, we joke that there's there's no assets, there's no hard assets to these businesses. That they're also not that capital intensive. You don't need a whole bunch of money to fuel growth. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. Totally, but. yeah, absolutely did. And you know, as because you're you know the long term play is that you're growing the value of this portfolio of companies, right? So the mm -hmm. overall, whether, I don't know if you're doing some sort of like multiple arbitrage where you're like, you're buying them on the two to three, not only are you growing, so the multiple is going to expand just by the normal growth of that individual asset, but I don't know if you're kind of assessing it where like the whole thing together is worth a seven X or something like that. Yeah. So um, there are some public company examples of this, like uh, Roper technologies would be one. Constellation software is the most like direct comparable to what we're doing because all okay. they do is acquire software companies. Now they've been doing it for 25 years and are worth like, <laughs> I don't know, $17 billion. So I don't want to like get out over my skis too much on that, that uh, <laughs> comparison, but you know, they trade at a multiple that is way higher than they're buying. at. And so you were private. We're thrilled to remain private for a very long time. Um, but there is that notion of, I, I'll give you a specific example. We have, we bought a business for, um, I think it was doing 50k a month in revenue so that would translate to you know 600k a year and so that is in this multiple range that i'm talking and it's a beautiful wonderful software business it was growing founder was amazing super profitable so it commanded like a you know high-ish multiple in our range and now it is doing almost two hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue so and and you know by our, project, our forecast has it at like 240 uh, by February, March. So it's been a great result for us. And 240 mm -hmm. is important because that means it's 3 million a year in mm -hmm. revenue. Um, you start breaking through some of those thresholds, particularly 5 million a year in revenue. Now you're talking about a multiple of revenue. That you're mm -hmm. getting. And now you're getting probably interest from bigger PE firms, or you're getting interest from strategic acquired, you know, back to your like exit options. Yep. So there absolutely is an arbitrage play there where we're buying, at a, you know, three to five X multiple of profits. Can we sell at a, you know, five to seven X multiple of revenue? Like that would be a home run investment. And that's why I say buy and hold as a business strategy. It is not a religion. 
Right. If we can turn, you know, if somebody makes us an offer we can't refuse, we're going to do that deal. We assess our whole portfolio once a quarter and kind of categorize things, say like, are we investing in this? Are we harvesting cash flow? Should we tee this up for a sale? You know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's just part of the normal. Again, that's one of our processes that we go through every quarter as a team. So this is a interesting time, I think, as we bridge into why you decided to raise some capital. But before I do that, I'm curious is, you know, I'm, I'm just picturing myself in your position where you got 38 companies where I don't know how many you hold right now, but you have cash flow because I know you said mm-hmm. that's your vanity metric. Are like, how was there a personal factor into this of like you and you, you five want to tap into those distributions because you've got your salaries, but if you're constantly reinvesting, I mean, we got five partners. One of the biggest challenges I see with any partnerships or families is like, you have to agree on how much you're going to pay and how much you're going to pay yourselves versus reinvest back in. And most people don't even agree on that because they don't agree on the long-term strategy. (laughs) So like, I mean, are you just rolling all the money back in or is there some sort of agreement of like when and how you guys can pull some money out of the business? It's, it's more about reinvesting and growth. So we, but, but to be honest, that has evolved. We started building the portfolio thinking, okay, we'll have all these companies that are just, you know, churning cash. Cause like the, the, the profitability of of these businesses ranges anywhere. I think the, the the quote unquote worst that we bought, it's still a wonderful business was 30% margins. And we bought businesses that were effectively, you know, 100% margin. Like it was the owner's time and like almost no expenses. So they are very, you know, they produce a lot of cash. So we thought, all right, we'll just roll these up and like everybody pulls cash out. And then, you know, as I got into it and, you know, my caveman brain started thinking a little bit more, I'm like, well, this money could just fund the next acquisition (laughs) and the next acquisition. So Like, yeah, I need to pay my mortgage and feed my family. But like after that, and your your whole point about don't burn EBITDA, like we are now way more, and for, you know, four plus years, we've been way more focused on creating enterprise value. That mm-hmm. is the, that is the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we, we have a, you know, really healthy partnership group that, you know, usually agrees on things. And when we don't agree, we just talk through it and sort it out. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to have partners that are really well aligned on the long-term goals for the business. So what was the conversation when you guys all, or guys, gals, I don't know what the setup is, but uh, when you all were sitting there and you said like, Hey, let's go take other people's money and buy companies now. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was similar to uh, the debt conversation, right? We were like, okay, this is working and we can keep growing at this pace, but it's working. And so maybe we want to accelerate our growth. And to be honest with you, I was the the most hesitant because I knew I'd been working with four, there they all happen to be guys. I've been working with four guys for, you know, four plus years at this point. And I'm like, this is working. And if we go take on other investor money, that might feel like I have a boss. And I absolutely do not want to ever feel like I have a boss. <laughs> and, you know, it might be dozens of bosses if it's all these investors and it took me a little while to wrap my brain around, like, is that what I want? But, you know, two things, again, I got out a spreadsheet and I'm like, okay, well, we're finally getting like really good at this. And we've narrowed our focus to just look for bootstrapped software as a service businesses. And as we narrowed that focus and I had a more and better team helping with it, we just got, we're, we're getting really, really good at this. And again, the spreadsheet says, okay, you could either stop here or we can kind of 
make a bet on ourselves, reinvest in ourselves, however you want to look at it. And that just requires new and different money at the table. And so that was one thing I just kind of said, okay, well, I'm, I'm a fairly a humble yet ambitious person. And so I'm like, if this is going to be my job for the rest of my life, I want it to be you know, really big, really interesting, create jobs for hundreds of people, not just dozens. And if I want to do that, I need to get over this notion of having some bosses and, and go out and at least find out if investors would be interested. And so one thing, I just kind of got over it. And then the second thing was I started talking to investors about this concept and people thought it was really interesting and really cool. And they're like, Kevin, this is amazing. Can I give you some of my money and you just keep doing what you're doing? And um, had enough conversations and enough, you know, um, good conversations that I was like, okay, I need to think about this differently. A good friend of mine, like when we're having a discussion about a challenge, he always likes to say, what if the opposite were true? And I was actually talking to him about, you know, okay, if I bring on all these investors, I've got dozens of people and I'm managing their money. And what if they all feel like a boss? And he's like, Kevin, what if the opposite were true? What if it's the best thing that you've ever done? Like okay, well that might be possible, and what? And it turns out <laughs> it has been. You know what? We now have fifty new people who have trusted us with their money, and about half of them are entrepreneurs themselves and have had either built and sold successful software companies, or they're running successful software companies. So it's just like the network has expanded. The the help that I'm getting, the you know everybody's like. Call me if you need help. Otherwise, I'm staying out of your way because I got my own stuff to take care of. Um, we also have private equity professionals working for very large firms that you would know the names of that are investing their personal capital in what I'm doing, which is humbling and flattering. And I'm like, if that dude thinks what we're doing is a good idea, it must be a good idea. Uh, we have family office professionals who are invest. They, you know, not the office money, but they're investing their personal capital in what we're doing. And so it's been a great experience. And, you know, deal flow has gotten better because we now have, you know, 50 plus people looking out for us and looking for deals that they should, they would funnel our way. So uh, it was sort of the fund was born out of not necessity, but ambition. And it's turned out to be, you know, just just a home run and helping the business kind of grow to the next level. Um, so I'm curious when you're going to these 50 people, what are you saying to them? Like, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, cause like, I, and the reason I, I want to frame up the question like that, Kevin, is I think that probably encapsulates a lot of your learning lessons too. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Cause so like, I'm just yeah, another way of saying it. What did you learn? So what are you saying to them? How are you going to use their money? Also, what did you learn that allows you to use their money in a more effective way? Uh, there's typically two, two ways that it goes um, for the kind of prototypical SaaS founder who understand, who lives in this sector of the worldwide economy that most people don't understand exists. I say, we're buying and holding a portfolio of SaaS companies and sharing resources to help them all grow. And they're like, I get it. What's the minimum order of the terms? I mean, like they don't have to, they don't have to be explained why it's a good financial model. People that don't live in that world, there's a whole lot of questions about like, what are these businesses? What's to stop Google from, you know, squashing any one of them? Where do you find them? How, who, you know, like, what do you mean a solo founder can be running a business that's making 140 grand a month? That doesn't even make sense. All legitimate questions, questions right. that I had myself. And so there's kind of those two categories. 
And in either in either case, I just kind of explain what we're doing. And and I kind of take the approach based on, you know, uh, they're all smart people, but it's a matter of like, how much do you know about what I'm doing? Because you've either done it or you you have something yep. similar. Um, the the private equity guy, and I would I would tell you the name of the firm and his name, but I don't think his firm would want the name getting out on a podcast. It was fascinating to me that he works in big, proper private equity, not not Blackstone, but like a competitor to Blackstone. Yeah, yeah. And yet he understood our market, my market, as well as anybody that I've ever come across. Because he just started like learning and pulling on the thread and listening to podcasts and reading blogs. And like, I think he found me. I didn't even find oh, dude, him. I, like, he just emailed me. He was like, hey, I like what you're doing. Are, are you willing to like take investment? And so it's been kind of a weird journey. But um, the, the, the biggest thing I decided to, I mean, it's part of how I lived my life. It wasn't really about fundraising. I just try to be as like authentic and transparent with people as possible. And I just tell them the truth. You know, I'm like, ask me anything you want, hard questions, easy questions. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And if you're into it and you want to invest, awesome. And if you're not, it doesn't work out. That's fine too, because I know it's not for everybody. So a couple questions on your uh, fund setup and just more structurally, you don't have to give anything confidential unless you're willing to give certain numbers, but like what enterprise value, total enterprise value do you plan to acquire? Like, like, so if you're going out and buying, like if it's a $2 million business, you know, is it 10 of them or like, so what, and is, does this up the game of like the size companies that you can acquire? So like overall enterprise value. And then are you, are you taking on debt when you're acquiring these or like, what's your overall setup and, and philosophy? Yeah, we, we are not publishing the total fund size, but I can tell you we're buying our target Acquisition price is one to five million dollars in a for sale price. Okay, uh, and the reason for that is they, those are very commonly the, this type of business that we we have acquired in the past. We're really good at that. We understand how to operate those things. You know, a, a two million dollar business is funny enough, like not that much harder to operate than a business you buy for two hundred k. I have learned, and so why not go a little bit bigger? But in in the five million isn't a hard cap. But getting much bigger than that, we're and I love competing in the one to five million dollar space because I truly believe there is nobody in the world better than SureSwift at acquiring businesses that look bootstrap SaaS businesses that are that size. Nobody mm -hmm. in the world. If we started acquiring businesses that were eight or ten million dollars, which we could based on the money that we have, we're now competing with more you know private equity like pro proper private yeah, equity yeah, like heavy hitters. For, Yes, yeah, you know, bolt on acquisitions for for um, corporates, and it's just a different game than than I choose to play right yep. now. Yep. And the other reason for that check size is I've committed to investors. You are going to have a very large portfolio of different diversified companies, so that if any one of them has a really bad quarter or a bad year, it doesn't disrupt the returns of the fund overall. So. Don't, I don't mean to dodge your question. It's just no, no, I think you answered it. I mean, no, that, that was super helpful. So then does your fund have a, like, do you have like the Brent B. Shore permanent equity model of never selling it? Or like, did you, do you have a date on the calendar that you have to liquidate these or the fund by? Yeah, we kind of, um, through discussion, I feel like created a, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's unique is the right word because there might be others in the world that exist like this, but it is different. 
Uh, so absolutely went in with the Brent permanent equity model. And I was fortunate he was uh, helpful to me and advice and like pros and cons, do's and don'ts. So I, I went to early conversations with potential investors and I'm like, I want you to give me your money and we're never going to liquidate the portfolio because that doesn't make sense. Uh, and a lot of them agreed. Like, like these, some of these PE people that we're talking to were like, yeah, the worst part is that you have to sell your best assets. <laughs> the guys from the business. The time yeah. And they're like, that doesn't make sense. Why would any business owner sell their best asset that's performing with us? And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Let's not do that. And as we talked with uh, you know, advisors, attorneys, investors, they're like, you kind of have to have a way for people to get their money back. So what we structured- <laughs> Kind of a thing, Kevin. <laughs> you know, life changes. And we're, we've got um, some investors where this is their first like legitimate- like private investment or something. Invest, private yeah. investment. And, you know, I I take that very seriously. And if that person, for whatever reason, needs their money back, like, we got to figure that out. So what we structured is effectively a four-year hold period. I said, we're going to try to deploy all this money in about two years, but I'm not, like, beholden to that timeline. It's just, like, mm-hmm. that's how we size the fund. And then after the last check is written, that starts a two-year clock. And during that two-year window, you can have your money back, but you're going to take a severe haircut because mm-hmm. that puts a burden on the fund. And yeah, you know, you're and doing things with it. Yeah, right. We're doing we're, we're deploying the money, and we've just spent all the money, so we can't just start handing people their money back after that clock expires. So roughly four years from first investment, any investor can ask for a redemption of their capital, and um, we will establish like a quarterly fair market value for the portfolio and just be transparent about that and. If an investor asks for their money back, SureSwift has first right of refusal to buy them out at that fair market value. Should we pass, it goes to the other investors in the fund. And should they pass on the fair market value, which is like a almost a 0% chance yeah, that that 60 people or whatever the total is. I mean, yeah. And a lot of people, they're like, here's some money. And if I had more, I would give you more. But like, I want to increase my share over time. So that very unlikely chance, but in the outside chance that nobody wants to buy that person out, they can go outside the fund and bring a new LP in and my, you know, drop some lingo. I'm the managing member of the fund and I have discretion to, you know, basically if they want to bring in a known terrorist or, you know, drug dealer into the <laughs> fund, I have the right to say no. But outside of that, like, sure, swap your money yeah. out at that fair market value. We're not going to have people trading above or below that because that hurts investors. But that's the process that we ended up defining over lots of discussion. And I feel like it's a really nice, healthy blend of permanent equity, long-term thinking, but people still can liquidate their investment at the timing of their choice. I, I think it's so cool, Kevin, because like, you know, the one thing that I try and get across in our training is like, even on the private equity, like the amount of questions that you should ask someone, because like, think about what you just described. It's truly as creative as you want. So like when I've said, if you've seen one private equity firm, you've seen one. Mm-hmm. Cause like, think about what you just said. You said you're probably the only person that I've talked to that has some scenario like that. So like, yeah, and I've heard you describe like what, where are we in the fund life cycle and <laughs> how much have you invested? What have you committed to, to LP? Like those are all really smart questions if selling the private equity that one should ask. And then the answers aren't good or bad. You just need to know what you're signing up for. And for us, the answer, we just talked to a you know, founder this morning who, you know, the answer is we're going to buy your company. We're going to keep the brand. 
in most cases, we're going to put your face on the website as like, hey, we own this, but this is the person that built it. And isn't he amazing? And, you know, we're going to hold it indefinitely and hopefully grow it. And you move on to your next thing. We're going to celebrate that and promote your next thing. And, you know, we've got this growing network of founders who have sold to us, who um, one guy has sold two businesses to us. And they now refer deals to us and they, you know, we'll take a call from a founder who's thinking about selling to us. And it's just like this amazing network of people. And that may be true of other, of like these quote unquote proper private equity firms. I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, that's just the way that we've chosen to structure it. And you're right. You need to know who you're selling to. And that's why, you know, you and I agreed like selling price is one factor, but there are a whole lot of other factors that are equally important. So, as uh, you and I could keep going for a long time. So like, you know, when you think about selling prices, one thing, I, you know, other than making some crazy monumental one takeaway, Kevin, I like, you know, you, we've got a blend of listeners of a lot of, a lot of current owners who have not sold yet or are thinking I, a lot of people, I think are thinking once they start to understand this, want to acquire on their, uh, you know, acquire before they eventually sell, you know, so there's both sides of the coin, but like, if you were to go back to the Kevin that's working at Cerner and say, Hey, here are a couple of things you should just really know as a philosophy or just fun, fundamental knowledge. Like what would you have told yourself? That is a really uh, interesting question. And I, I have a couple of thoughts for a, uh, and this wouldn't something I, t- I would tell myself, but as you're, as you're talking about your listeners, as they're thinking through this, one thing that I, a lot of people know this, but one thing I share with founders who are thinking about selling is that as a seller, you're going to be tied to your business for the rest of your life, whether you own it or you don't. You know, what simply it's on your LinkedIn profile. As you're introducing yourself in a business setting, you might be like, oh, I'm so-and-so. I just sold this business. And and, and the reason that's important is that, you know, this is a cliche, but the best deals are, are, are good for both parties. And a seller who just wants to squeeze every dollar out of the buyer and squeeze the best terms out of the buyer, you're you're creating friction in that relationship immediately. And a seller who is trying to time the market and sell at the peak, and they know that there's a problem that their train coming coming down the tracks the other way that's about to hit them, the buyer's going to find that out, and that's going to not just create friction in the relationship, that's going to break it. And so that that that. Um, ongoing legacy where you're tied to your business, you've you've kind of ruined that. And so that's something that um, I think it's important for a seller to think about is that you want the buyer to be hugely successful with your business after you're gone. And you want them to grow it. And you want to look back five years and be like, wow, it's doubled or it's tripled or it's quadrupled. And isn't that amazing? And not be resentful that somebody did that with your business mm-hmm. uh, because, and, you know, just think of it like you chose not to do that. So a little bit in like the like seller mindset that I have learned along the way is important. I think it's important for people to think about. For me, if I could go back and give myself one piece of advice, it would be to understand that businesses take on the personality of their founder for better and for worse. <laughs> and I learned this the hard way it's true of all of like me, my business has some of my personality in it and hopefully my team compliments me and, you know, they're, they're filling the flaws that I have, but um, especially, you know, solo bootstrap founders, the business takes on the personality of the founder. And the reason that's important is that I look back and the biggest 
bombs of our acquisition history, the biggest mistakes, the biggest black eyes, each one of them, I think back and that founder, there was something that didn't fit with me as a person or us as a company. You know, like one example, like, you know, I hung up with the call and the technical guy that was on the call with me, we're both like, something's off about that guy. Like, I can't put my finger on it. Now we have a term for it internally. We call it founder fit. Is that founder a fit for us and our core values? Would we hire that person to work with us if given the opportunity? If it's a yes, then okay, let's proceed. If it's a no, it's like red light, stop the assembly line, yeah. it's yeah, over. Yeah. Because we have learned the hard way. <laughs> If that there, if there's something off about that founder, there's probably something off about their business and how they chose to grow it, or how they treated their team, or how they treated their customers, or the tech stack that they chose to implement, or whatever it is. You know, we we have learned that if the founders fit for us, then their business is probably more likely a fit for us too. And that doesn't mean you don't have to do all the due diligence and the other things aren't important. But that's one of those things that I never would have imagined that that would be one of our you know, kind of first five things that we review and kind of sign off on as a, as a team for an acquisition is that founder fit component. So interesting, man. Like I think about like, you know, efficient markets. I mean, the, you know, privately held M&A space is the, the definition of inefficient because yep. the knowledge is not universal. And yep. then like, it's really interesting with, when you just think about commerce in general, like people buying and selling stuff, it's all mm-hmm. based on trust and an agreement on value. Like, I mean, if you have that, you can hand off assets and everybody's happy, right? Because you, everybody, the sellers choose to sell for a reason, given all the knowledge that they have and buyers choose to buy it. Like, but the problem with the, this marketplace is not efficient. And so like all the, like, I mean, you're totally spot on and it just comes down to that gut instinct. And whether you're a buyer and you want to buy a good asset, you're drooling over it because of how much cash you can make and a seller, the same thing. And yet- Sometimes you could be blind yourself with that trust just because you want the deal so bad. <laughs> yeah. And another, another, that reminds me of another like issue in the, in the market that I don't think would ever be solved for. But again, back to like, I love that you and others are helping to educate people on this process. A lot of the people that sell their business to us, it's, they got one chance. They've, and most people, you know, our demographic skews pretty young, like, yeah, I would guess the average person we've acquired from is like 32 years old, and they all have the next thing that they're planning to go do. But there's no guarantee that that next thing is going to be as successful as the first thing. So they they're sitting on one asset, they can make one sale and have a life changing payday, and it terrifies people that they're going to screw it up. And nobody learns about this process, or you have to learn on your own through podcasts or books or whatever, and you still have this fear that you're going to screw something up. And then we're on the other side of the table and we've done this 38 times and it's not my one chance to get right or wrong. It's like, I really want to get it right. But if I miss something, it's not going to, you know, screw up my, my network. Life. Yeah. And honestly, there's an information advantage and asymmetry there that we, we choose to flip on its head and we choose to be a part of the education process. Uh, Chris, who's our VP of acquisitions, does a monthly webinar, just like how our business is valued with no expectation other than we'd like to have your email so we can send you the invite. No expectation you're going to sell to us. You don't have to tell us anything about your business. We're just trying to put good information out into the world and be helpful to people. And we try, you know, the the founder I mentioned this morning, he said at the end of our call, he's like, man, you've taken what is a very stressful process and made it 
a little bit less stressful just by the way that your team interacts, you know, the, how transparent you are about the process, the fact that you've done this before. And so we, we try to take that, a, that asymmetry and, and not take advantage of it because other, other people do. And, and that, again, back to that, like, we're tied to the founder for better and for worse. And so yep. if we take, they, we don't want people to try to take advantage of us based on what they know or time in the market. And, you know, in a compliment to that, I don't ever want to feel like a founder thinks they got taken advantage of by me or my team or the terms because we, we knew better than they did. And we snuck something past them. That's just not what we're about. Well, I think it's interesting because that is the definition of an inefficient market, right? Of everything you yeah. just described. And like, it is better for the buyers too, because you want people with better advisors to better understand the deal structure that yes. you're offering and say, hey, this is good. Because like, even if you did everything in your God-given ability to be transparent and truthful and honest and whatever, if they don't understand what you're offering, it still could blow up. Right. <laughs> you know, and, it's, and if I'm in a, in a, in a bidding against some you know, I, I like to say we don't get into bidding wars. Like this is our price; these are our terms. And if you can find something better from a better company, cool. I'm not. You know, we don't we don't necessarily like to play those games. And I like I don't know what the other firm or person is doing or offering or how they choose to treat people. I just like we're us. We're going to do it our way. And I know there have been times where we didn't we didn't have the highest price. And I don't know what the terms were, but the, the seller just believed that ours was a better home yep. for their business than the other person. And you're right. I want their, this is a, this is a very inefficient market. And when I got into it, it was even less efficient. Like, <laughs> there were literally podcasts telling people, yes, you can sell your bootstrap software business. It is a thing. There are buyers out there for it. Um, now the world has evolved a lot in five years and there are more professionals and more uh, understanding and transparency about what is the value of a company. And I want, this may sound weird, I wish there were more companies like SureSwift out there who were taking a healthy approach to it, doing it the right way, not just loading up with debt and buying one business to try to exit from their own corporate handcuffs, because that just, you know, that rising tide lifts all the boats and it makes this market being efficient is not bad for SureSwift. It just makes like it's, it's a bad for the, way of doing business and reduces friction. It's only bad for the predators out there. So two final questions and we can wrap up. One is what is, does the word intentional mean to you? Mm-hmm. Um, like tying it back to the name of the podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I just intentional meaning thoughtful and like not hasty. And I'm fortunate that I've got a really, really amazing team that is able to handle the day-to-day of the business. And I get to spend as much of my time and mental energy in the future as possible, which just means I've got more and more time to be intentional about what we want to be as a company, who I want to be as a founder and CEO, what sort of life and culture do I want for my team? What sort of experience do I want for investors and for founders who sell to us and for my team and for their families. And um, it's a more healthy way for me to live. And it wasn't, it's not like this is Kevin. I've evolved into this space because I kind of joked, like I was a caveman figuring stuff out. Like I still feel like that a lot of days, but you know, early SureSwift, it was a start. We were just figuring thing out day by day, week by week. And I'm fortunate to have had more successes than failures and have this team. And so 
for, for me, I guess you know, to put it a little bit more succinctly, it's like living in the future or putting my brain in the future and figuring out the path to get to that envisioned future. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. What's the best place to get in touch with you, find more information, sign up for those webinars, whatever your normal handles are? Yeah, SureSwiftCapital.com is the way to get on our email list and learn more about SureSwift. The webinars are front and center right there. Uh, The best way to connect with me is Twitter. I'm Kevin underscore McArdle, and McArdle only has one C, not two. I, I am... I exist on other social media platforms like LinkedIn and Facebook, but I don't pay much attention to it. So yeah, find me on, find me on Twitter. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. This has been fun. Yeah, Ryan, it's a pleasure. Glad to, glad to be with you. I hope the interview with Kevin was inspiring for you because it's possible to accomplish some pretty insane big goals if you have the right strategies and the right focus. You know, something called being intentional. <laughs> um, okay, I'll stop. Uh, I'm insanely impressed with how Kevin went about doing this, the focus they put in to grow to the size that they have. And as you could tell, Kevin and I's passion for understanding capital and how that relates to buying and selling companies and what you're going to do to reinvest in those companies to grow enterprise value and de-risk cash flow becomes crucial to putting together that strategy and that playbook so you can accomplish your goals. We've tried to make this as easy as possible for you to understand how all this stuff works by building this into our training. If you go check out the Intentional Growth Digital Course, it's like taking a pill in the matrix where you take it and then you just get it. That's what we've had people say. So if you want to just get it, it's going to take some work to learn, but those few hours that you're going to take learning is going to provide some clarity like you've never had and is going to show you what that path might look like to get to the goals that you want to accomplish. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.